What's up, everybody? It's Daniel Allison, The Average Dude. I'm going to keep this short and sweet. This interview is with Joel Thor Neeb. He's got a great, inspiring story. He's done a lot of cool things. This is the unedited version. We're going to get right into it. Let's roll. Is this Daniel? Yes, it is. There he is. Hey, how are you doing? Hey, I just ran upstairs to uh, grab a coffee. I'm in between virtual meetings, so I'll be on my camera and, and log into my computer in about two minutes if that works for you. Yeah, that's perfect, man. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll pause this recording. <laughs> how are you doing? I'm doing good. How about you? Pretty good. We have a uh, Kind of on the other side of all five of my family members with COVID, and uh, got a new lease on my feeling a lot better than we did before. Yeah, yeah, that was uh, I hated to hear that, but I'm, I'm glad everybody's feeling better. Yeah, it's definitely getting, getting better. I'm still kind of lingering. Have you had it yet? I had it, I had it at the end of uh, at the end of last year, and uh. I tell you, it took me about two months to really get my lungs back. Yeah, that's what I'm worried about. So I'm, I'm kind of in the same boat. I, it's funny. I, I think, oddly enough, talking to friends, guys who are in shape or work out a lot, for whatever reason, we're more susceptible to these lingering effects. Um, yeah. But, yeah, I'm feeling that same thing. Yeah, it's it's kind of strange. Um, but I, but I, I kind of feel the same way. I, you know, I would have thought before I had it that I would have been able to recover quickly, but I guess we also have our pulse on, you know, we're active enough to know when, when we feel it. <laughs> right. Right. So, so I, we, I also wonder if we're exacerbating it, you know, cause, because we, I don't know, I can see working out a couple weeks later, I was, I was working out pretty aggressively again. I don't know if it's just something that, you know, you're irritating your lungs by, by, I don't know. It's, I'm, I'm, that's bro science, but <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm trying to figure it out. No, I, I, uh, you know, I have read very little about it. I, I just don't, you know, that's one of those things where I just kind of, hey, what, you know, I, I, I don't know if I, I'm not very well informed. I'll say that, <laughs> you know, kind of, kind of go by feel. Yep. I don't think any of us are very well informed these days. <laughs> yeah. Hey, you know, there's, there's people, there's people that I respect that have different opinions and, you know, it's when things get to that point, you know, you just, you just, like you say, you just don't really know. And so um, we'll see what happens. <laughs> so right. I, hope, I hope not to get it again. I will say that. I've talked to a couple people who have had it twice and those that have said the second time was much less of an issue. Yeah. And, and this was your first go around? It was, I think so. I, I always thought, well, maybe I had when I had the sniffles back in, you know, in, in other times, but I don't think that I did in hindsight. Gotcha. Well, cool, man. Well, I'm I'm happy to have you on here. I've been I've been following you on LinkedIn for a little while. You've got a, a really cool story. So I'm excited to, to learn myself and share it with some other people. Well, I really appreciate you following up with me, Daniel, and, and, and sticking to it and being persistent. I know we've tried to do this a couple times now. I'm excited to talk to you too. 
And so it's uh, it's great for us to finally get this on the calendar. Yeah, absolutely, man. So. All right. Recording in progress. Uh oh, there, there you go. go. Now we take off both of them, and we're set. And we're live. I love it. I All love right. I love that back screen shot, man. That is the good old days. That is uh, me about ten years ago flying upside down in an F-15, as my kids would say back when I was cool, because I'm not anymore. <laughs> oh, no, man. You still got it. You still got it. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, I, you know, the, the research that I did for our interview was watching a movie. I'm not a big movie guy, but I said I need to do a little bit of research so I know a little something. The movie I watched, Top Gun. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's, uh, the flying is, you know, obviously there's some Hollywoodisms in there. I played a lot less beach volleyball than those guys did, but, uh, <laughs> the personalities are similar, believe it or not. I, no, I can't believe that. that was actually one of the questions that I was going to ask you. So for the folks that don't know, you, you, you weren't a Navy guy, you were an Air Force guy, correct? That's right. Yep. And, yeah. uh, after I, after I watched the movie, it, it did give me, you know, what happened after I watched it? And, and I'm going to call you, should I call you Thor? That's your call sign, right? That's my call sign. And, you know, either Joel or Thor in the business world, I'm known as Thor because that's part of our brand at Afterburner to, to stay with call signs. Gotcha. So I'm, I'm going to go with what comes naturally, right? Um, so what I would say is that after I, after, I watched, after I watched the movie, I got interested because it was just this kind of thing, this, hey, it, you know, that's a cool thing that people do. It looks pretty hard. It looks pretty cool. But I just didn't know much about it watched the movie and then got on YouTube and started watching, you know, F-15s and, and, and learning more about what you guys do. So, so where did, where did this, Pat, when did you know that you wanted to become a pilot in the Air Force? I, I wish this was a more exciting story, Daniel, because I went to the Air Force Academy and I went there with a lot of people who would tell you that, you know, they have been dreaming of being fighter pilots uh, since they were a little boy or a little girl and that this was a, you know, everything coming together for this moment. For me, I honestly kind of fell into it. I'm one of the very, very few people that says that. I love Top Gun as well. You know, the movie's awesome. I think everybody kind of connects with that, but yeah. probably the same way people wanted to be a firefighter or something, right? You know, it's it's yeah. It's kind of, just that childhood connection. The Air Force Academy was an incredible school. I wanted to serve and, and I thought flying would be neat, but it wasn't the draw. Once I got there is when I got a chance to get up in the air in a glider and experience some, you know, hanging out with some people that were fighter pilots. And, and by that point now I'm starting to get hooked. Gotcha. No, that, that actually makes it more, a, a little more interesting because it opens up a, a new kind of thing there. I did expect you to say it's been a lifelong dream. You know? Yeah, for almost every other one of my friends, it had been, and we showed up, and they knew every plane, and they could tell you all about missiles, and and, and I was I was dumbfounded, like I had I had no, no idea on any of that stuff, and very quickly learned, but they were yeah, ahead. yeah. So what does I guess I guess oh so you got up in a glider, and what what's a glider? What's that experience like? I would say flying in a glider is probably the purest form of flight. So now I've flown many different types of aircraft, as you can imagine. When yes. you're flying in a glider, you get towed up in the air. If you think about like water skiing and, and you know, you're pulling somebody with a boat, there's an actual plane with a propeller and an engine, a normal plane, that is pulling you up in the air. It's dragging you up in the air. You're attached to this with what looks like that, that ski rope, and yeah. it's attached to the front of your plane. And then when you get to a high enough altitude, you pull a lever in the cockpit and it releases that rope. 
and the airplane Ooh. flies away and you fly in a different direction. And the reason wow. I call it the purest form of flying is because it just gets completely silent. There's no engine to listen to. Yeah. There's the sound of the wind going by and you, the only thing you have to worry about is moving the stick. You don't have a hand on the throttle or all these other things that I had to get used to later on with, with propulsion. It's just pure flying like, like you would imagine in your dreams. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. And so then you, you kind of fell in love with it, got the bug. Like you say, you probably were around some cool people. They were pilots. You're already at the Air Force Academy. And so then you start your, you said, I can do this. I mean, in, in your mind, you said, I can, I can handle this. Because it's not an easy thing to do, I wouldn't imagine. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Um, one of one of my epiphanies was I didn't really say I could handle it. Uh, one of the things and and without, you know, getting deep really quickly. But one of the things that I've always had in the back of my mind is this nagging self doubt, like, gosh, I don't think I can do this. You know, these, okay. there's all these other people that are going out and and hopping into a supersonic jet. And I'm watching other graduates that that I'm friends with that uh, graduated a couple years before me. And I'm seeing the pictures come back of, of their experiences. And I'm saying, how the heck are they doing that at 23 years? Years old upside down flying faster <laughs> than the speed of sound and, and yeah. so it's really daunting um to at, at, at first if i'm being honest yeah no that's i, I actually I, I appreciate the honesty you know uh because we all have things similar to that and so i i guess what i'm really after is what was that when you when you were finally by yourself in the plane by yourself and you're you're you've got all of this equipment and if you watch the youtube videos if People don't know about the F-15, they need to watch the YouTube videos because you really get an appreciation for what, what you're actually doing. These are multi-million dollar, what, 15, 20, 30 million dollar planes, right? Yeah, at the time I was flying, it was a $50 million machine uh, yeah. and the, 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 the ones today are worth even more. So an F-22 is close to a billion. Wow. So you're up there by yourself, I guess, at a certain point, you've you've got a uh, you've got someone that's training you, and now you're by yourself. It you're a, you're in control. What was that like? It's it, it upon reflection, it's really the power of an elite team and a system that pulls you through it. In other words, I could never have pushed myself to learn any of the things that I was doing at 23 years old. Certainly not in a 50 million dollar machine with 350 switches and dials in it. <laughs> It was a pulling mechanism, a, a vision for what success looked like that was painted for me and told me exactly what a fighter pilot should be like very clearly to find that destination. It yeah. was a path to get there where they, they laid out very clearly, if you do these things, you will become a fighter pilot. And, and those things were very, very, very hard, but it was just a matter of executing them and, and sticking to the plan. And then the last piece was that they had to surround me with some elite people to feel like I was doing this with a group. And, and then I, you know, I couldn't have done it on my own. If I was a class of one, it, I, I don't think I would have made it through. But because I was experiencing this with this elite team at the same time, it was just such a transformative formula that where you're spit out on the other side doing something that you never thought you'd be able to. Man, now that's awesome. I, I love that. And so it's, it's one step at a time. You're learning. Like you say, I, I love the way that you said that. So by the time you're in, in control, it's just part of the plan. You've been doing this already. You've been riding that wave of learning and 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 growth in this area. And now it's and now it's just the next step. Yeah, we 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 have a saying that you know the days drag by, and each day it feels like it's thirty four hours instead of twenty four because you're just packing so much of training and and uh, academics and then flying and everything else that you can imagine into it, and working out because it's extremely strenuous flying these planes. 
And, yeah. but the months fly by. And so you're going through this arduous process and it just feels like it's going to be an infinite place you find yourselves in. And then one day you wake up and you're in the F-15 flying faster than the speed of sound with seven of your closest friends, some of them yeah. two feet away from you. And <laughs> you just got to pinch yourself and say, I somehow I just, I, I made it. That is, that is so awesome, man. So, so you brought up an interesting point. I, I did, I did read and understand that there was, there's, there's physical, demands i mean you you've got to be you're you've got to have good eyesight you've got to be a certain height weight you've got a, the the intellectual side of it, it, it there's a lot that goes into it We're, we can't just put up anybody in this plane yeah just like anything in life daniel is it, success was extremely complex so it wasn't just you know a, a certain set of attributes that was going to make make us successful it wasn't just good uh stick and rudder skills which is the way we call you know the hand-eye coordination uh, for that for the pilot you actually had to show up with spatial reasoning skills because as you're flying and, and doing a rejoin on another another airplane you have to calculate in your head while you're flying uh, this other airplane's going 350 miles an hour I'm looking down and, and seeing my overtake in other words how quickly I'm overtaking his aircraft and he's turning towards me so there's a combination of angles and uh, and my own velocity at 380 miles an hour that I'm closing in and I'm with and I need to time it so so that I'm slowing down and of course I don't hit him, but then I also don't stagnate out here because maybe we're gonna uh, go into a cloud in a second. I need to be right on his wing at three feet away. And, and these things are all happening in three dimensions. And so in my head, it, all of that is being translated into movements with my hands. And then at the same time, it's arduous from the fact that if you're pulling G-forces, which is uh, the number uh, of times force of gravity that you're, that you're pulling. Sometimes I'm pulling nine G's, nine times the force of gravity. My 200 pound body weighs 1800 pounds under nine G's. And uh, it's the most, and then you're doing math problems on top of that while you're pulling nine G's trying to, trying to stay conscious. Yeah, there's, you know, man, there's so many different directions. I think it's so cool, but you know, I, I read about the cab. So you, I guess they call it the cab. So you forgive me when I use the wrong term. Okay. But, but you're able to look all the way around your, you know, you've got 360 degrees of visual, but then you've got your, your HUD, you've got in your helmet, you've got the same information, but, and, and then you've got controls that are giving you data and feedback that aren't even part of that system. And so you get all of the necessary information coming at you in all kinds of different ways, right? A hundred percent. And, and the, the mindset we would have is that we would not strap ourselves into the jet. We would strap the jet on our back. And here's what the difference is there. You were strapping something onto your back that was going to equip you with the ability to do all these incredible magical things. And so what that means is when you rest your hand on the throttle, which is your left hand or the stick, which is for your right hand, every finger rests on a button. Every single finger is, and it's like a musical instrument. We call it playing the piccolo as you're, as you're changing all these switches and dials and then with your hand. In front of you, there's 300 gauges uh, that, that, you know, most of them there to distract you at any given point in time. You don't have 300 eyeballs, so you got to figure out what's important to look at. And then as yeah. you alluded to, we got that heads up display, which is a hologram uh, sitting in front of us, which is right outside the, the front of the cockpit. And then towards the later portion of my stay in the aircraft, I had a similar hologram portrayed about a half inch uh, in front of my eyeball. And so it's like a video game when it, when, you know, it has an overlay for the world where you get to see um, you know, it, 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 a box around other aircraft that can tell you where it's friendly or they're, they're a foe. So it's literally like playing a giant video game um, up in the sky. Yeah, 
Man, that's intense. So one thing I did here, and, and I want to I want to hear a little bit about your training for for how to deal with G-force. I didn't understand that, but I, I did listen to a video talking about it, and they said, and I thought this was a good exit. This clicked for me. He said, if you've got something up on on your dashboard and you make a turn and it slides across the dash, that's that's the kind of that's what's happening with with G-force. Can you explain that a little bit, and then how you how you prepared yourself because you can't you can't pass out due to g-forces when you're up in this plane with all this going on right exactly so that what you just described is you're driving and let's say your sunglasses slide across your dashboard in your car uh when yeah. you do a turn that's an example of lateral g-forces so that's g-forces or forces usually you know centrifugal forces i'm turning it wants to keep going that direction so they'll slide sideways when that happens Okay. Very, ra very rarely are we exposed to lateral G-forces in the plane. That probably means we're in a spin, which is a bad day, which yeah, yeah. we've all been in spins, but, uh, but that's, that's about the time when you get that lateral G-force. Gotcha. What's much more likely is what's called a positive G-force, and that's, that's right straight down your body. And okay. what, what the example I would use there is, have you been on a roller coaster before? Yes, yeah. So, so you know that feeling, not when you go down the hill, that's a negative G-force, but maybe when you go into a loop and you feel yourself sinking into the seat and, yeah. you know, maybe even lose vision a little bit if it's an aggressive enough uh, roller coaster and, and yeah. your breathing rate increases. You know that feeling? Yeah, I do. Yeah. That's three and a half, four G-forces when you're doing that in a roller coaster. When I would do that in a fighter plane, as I'm turning and I pull back on the stick and I'm going 500 miles an hour, that translates to a turn that's pushing me down in the seat, just like when you're on that roller coaster, to the tune of nine G-forces. And so every part of your body weighs nine times more. My arm weighs 400 pounds. My leg weighs 600 pounds. <laughs> and then not only that, but your blood weighs more too. So internally what's happening is your blood is trying to leave your head because now it weighs so much and pool in your feet. And of course, if your oxygen rich blood leaves your head, that's a really bad day. And we don't want that to happen uh, 5,000 feet above the ground going 500 miles an hour. And so the wow. only option we have to keep ourselves conscious at this point, because it's just a physiological reaction. You can't affect it. You're going to pass out uh, under nine plus G's. And so what you, what you do is you squeeze your muscles so you don't give the blood a place to go. And this is what I meant by saying it was a strenuous activity flying. You squeeze your leg muscles as hard as you can, make them rock solid in your thighs, your glutes, your abdomen, your stomach muscles. And what you're hoping is that you're not leaving the blood a place to go to, to pool outside of your head. And your whole body acts like a heart as you're pushing the blood back up into your brain so you can stay wow. conscious during this. And it, to give you an idea of just how dramatic it becomes, we will watch the world start to go away because when you, when you lose oxygen in your brain, the first thing to go is your peripheral vision and it, we call it seeing through the soda straw. It'll start to get down to where the only thing you can see if you're looking through a soda straw is straight ahead of you. And that's how you know you're about to black out. So you, don't, you, don't, you wanna be really careful at this point but you also have to get here once in a while because you have to fly at the ragged edge of control because you're assuming that the enemy's doing the same thing and you're trying to outfly them and maybe save your life in the process. And so we gotta be able to do that. Okay, so let me ask you this. Thank you for that explanation. So what did you ever have a moment where you were, uh, that, that you were nervous? It's up that, that, that things were going badly or you, know, you might have to, to pull the cord at the, Jacked out of a, a plane. Did you ever have a situation like that? So I, you, you asked if I ever had moments where I was nervous. I would say 
early on tons of moments of anxiety and i think that's important to get out because I, you know on tv it looks like we're just all calm cool and collected and and you know this is easy for us and and to a certain extent it's it's easier than you'd anticipate it would be because you've got such great training but there's always self-doubt and there's always a, a bit of terror associated with it uh, early on. You, of course, you get past that just as you wouldn't be terrified to drive your car at this point. But early on, uh, when, you are, when you're in that plane and it's all new to you, it's a combination of terror and exhilaration in the cockpit. And, and I've, I've found that those are the best, most transformative moments in my life when it is a combination of terror and exhilaration. And I have, I've had many of those since then. And I, I, you know, there's, there's this great temptation to avoid the terror, of course, because that's, it's, you know, it's horrible and, and anxiety ridden and everything else you can imagine taking off solo by yourself with nobody else in the cockpit and doing that for the first time. But, yeah. it, but it's also, those are the transformative moments. Those are the things I seek in life uh, at this point. Yeah, uh, get that heart rate up, man. Yep. That natural adrenaline, you gotta love that. So one other thing I wanted to hit on. So so you stayed in the Air Force for like 25 years, correct? Not quite that long. So I was in for 15 years uh, as a full-time pilot. And uh, and then I had about a year and two or three months where I wasn't flying because of a medical issue. And, uh, but the rest of the time I got to fly throughout my entire career. And uh, it was just incredible. Yeah, and you were also trained. You were training other pilots. Is that correct? I was. So my last role was chief instructor pilot at the headquarters for Air Force flight training, and so I was a tactical leader for about three hundred other instructor pilots, and we taught uh, other flight uh, other pilots how to instruct. So we would teach how to teach effectively, and I was the oh. head teacher for all of that. Well, and, now that's uh, and it, it's fun. Yeah, because you're going to get, like you say, uh, like, like you alluded to earlier, Top Gun, you, you see these different personalities and you have to kind of meet the student where they are and, and teach differently because people learn differently, correct? That's exactly right. And, and what it really comes down to is having a common mental model for that learning, because as you said, there, there are going to be personality differences and, and to an even greater extent, there's going to be diversity when you go train and, and prepare with 25 allied nations, which is what I had to do as well. So not mm -hmm. only do we have Goose and Maverick and Iceman in the room who you know have very big, bold personalities and are buttonheads, but we also have team members from South Korea and Denmark and wow. England and Australia. And so we've got this massive amount of diversity. I always say it was, it's the best diversity and inclusion example uh, in the world because we're forced to create missions that we're all aligned to. And you got to remember, some of these people you know, they, they, there's cultural barriers, there's language barriers. Some of them don't even like us. And, and yet we have an inclusive methodology and a common mental model to bring everybody together towards the mission and be successful. That's awesome. So, so incredible experience there, obviously. A lot of the things that you've learned and, and, and there's so much more to get to that, that I want to kind of keep it going. But of course, you, you're applying that now with Afterburner, obviously, right? So Exactly. Yeah, so Afterburner was started 25 years ago. I didn't found the company. It was founded by Jim Murphy, who was a former F-15 fighter pilot as well. And uh, he had the same epiphany I did. He, he, you know, woke up at one point in the plane saying, oh my gosh, how did I go from, in his words, farm boy to fighter pilot? He grew up on a farm in Kentucky. He would tell you he was a C student in, uh, in, at Kentucky. Uh, yeah. the, the college. And, and so, you know, not, not necessarily going to be blazing any trails uh, with that, but somehow he was pulled through a system and, that was bigger than him and allowed him to do something amazing. And he said, if I could bottle this, 
I can transform a, any person individually, but then more importantly, organizations with this as well and create elite teams everywhere. And you found it afterburner on that concept. Man, I love it. That's awesome. So I want to talk about, you, you have talked a little bit on LinkedIn about survivor's obligation. So right. you, you had a, a pretty serious health scare and, and maybe timeline that for us so folks know where we are in, in your career and, and where that happened and, and then what, what that's kind of uh, helped you realize. Yeah, so about 10 years into my flying career, I'm very comfortable now in the cockpit. You know, a few moments of terror here and there, but there are very few uh, at this point. It's, it's like driving my car at this stage yeah. and uh, getting ready to uh, try out for the Air Force Thunderbirds, like the Blue Angels, and okay. go be on the demonstration team and go travel the world with, with those folks. Feeling on top of the world as well in terms of health. I was working out all the time and I felt great. And then out of the blue, I get this crazy stage four cancer diagnosis. And it's this totally rare cancer that nobody ever gets. I was the first one in the Air Force to get it. And then all of a sudden I'm staring down uh, massive surgery, six months of chemo, and then most likely the end of my life as well. Oh, so that, that's the, you know, that, that's the thought that none of us like to have. I'll, I'll occasionally go to this place to remind me, hey, this can happen to us anytime. But I'm sure when you actually get that call, I, I don't. I don't know how I would take that, quite honestly. How, it was, how, does, how does that hit you? It was definitely the worst case scenario. And uh, it was, it's debilitating, I would say. So, you know, so other people would say to me, well, you're fortunate you're, you're a fighter pilot. So at least you had, you know, this, this, this strength of character and you'd, you'd been in scary situations in the past. And I guess there's a little bit of that, but I'm still human. And, and it was it's extremely overwhelming to be facing the end of my life, the end of my family unit after I was gone. You know, I had a wife and young kids, the end of my, my kids having a dad and just all these other things you can imagine that, that you know, that un, to unpack these emotions at that time. And so I was pretty much a zombie the first month and just walking around, uh, you know, completely tired and sick at the same time. And and not having a clue what to do next. And, and how old were you at that point? 33. 33, man, prime, prime time. I mean, yeah. living the dream, coolest job in the world, and, and or one of the coolest anyway, right? I mean, get ready to fly with the Thunderbirds and to get that kind of, of news, that's, that's huge. And I, and I know you've learned a lot from that and, and this survivor's obligation. And this has led to other things. And, and, and I'd like for you to talk about maybe some of the folks that you were with and some of the lessons that came out of this. You're obviously still here. So right. thank God for that. Yeah, that was 11 years ago. And, and so they had told me um, <clears throat> 11 years ago and a couple days, because we just passed the anniversary, they told me that I had about an 18-month life expectancy. They said, this is just a cancer that comes back with a vengeance. And here's what you can expect. Um, and you know, to do the Disneyland trip right now, because you probably won't have time with the kids after this and, and all the things that can happen there. Uh, and I was doing chemo and had major surgery. And while I was in chemo, chemo is an interesting thing to endure. Cause you, you, you have to do it for a couple hours. If, if anybody's ever done chemotherapy, you are hooked up to a machine that's effectively pumping poison into your body, uh, for a period of time. It's the equivalent 
of starting a fire in your house to catch a rat, right? And hopefully you, you know, burn out the rat's nest before you burn down the house. And, and that's the same thing with chemotherapy. It's, it's a little bit of poison that you're taking in and it's targeted, but at the same time, it's, it's, it, it's going to make you really sick and it's horrible. And so they have to let it into your body very slowly. So it takes a good three or four hours for this to, to, to occur. And they put you in a room full of other people that are doing the exact same thing. Everybody's got an IV bag of chemo poison that they're hooked up to. And inevitably we start talking to each other Yeah, and you, you get to know these folks. And, and I always say that I was, I was so proud to know them in these moments because it didn't matter who it was. I was seeing them in their finest hour and I was seeing them, you know, they didn't want to do this, whether they liked it or not, they had to do it, but they still were, they're standing up to something in their life that they never anticipated having to stand up to. And, and, and they, we had conversations about what that was like. And everybody was so optimistic about how that, what they were going to do on the other side of cancer. And that's what got you through chemo and, and everything else. And I would say, when I finish with cancer, I'm going to go watch the Super Bowl because I always wanted to do that. And somebody would say, when I finish with cancer and I beat it, I am going to, uh, you know, go on that vacation with my daughter. We didn't have the relationship I wanted to have with her growing up. I worked too much and, and now I'm going to finally invest in her and, and have that relationship that, that we just missed out on. And everybody to a person, we'd all go through, you know, what we're going to do when we get that second chance. And then a lot of these people didn't get to come back uh, from this. So uh, yeah. the next week I'd show up and somebody wouldn't be there. And it didn't mean they died right away, but it, it meant that the chemo wasn't working. And it was the yeah. beginning of the end uh, for those folks. Wow. I, I guess, it, like you say, so you, you've been around some, some people that had probably a lot of confidence. They're living the high life, no pun intended. And then you go into this room where everybody's pumping poison. There, there's no ego at this point. It doesn't really matter about the credentials or what you've accomplished. We're fighting for our lives here. I mean, and and that's that's just got to be such a uh, a scary situation. But a, a time to connect, I guess. Yeah, it, it is absolutely scary. Uh, but it's also, uh, to your point, it's it's a very pure connection that you're having with another human being. There's yeah. a phrase that I like that the dying have the most to teach us about life, and and I think it's true. I think it comes from the fact that when you're dying or you're facing your end of life, everything else is stripped away. And we realize how much noise is in our life and how many things that bothered us yesterday that we wouldn't care about at all today now that I have cancer and I'm fighting this battle. And, and you realize that you should never have cared about that. You, you, you find out what, what's most important and what should have been most important all along. And that's what I mean when I feel like I'm around people in their finest hour because they have a sense of clarity and they have a sense of focus and they have a sense of purity that you just can't find outside of that room. That, that's that's amazing story. And so, like, obviously, you were able to pull through, I guess, the cancer's in remission or the doctors gave you the, the all clear sign at a certain point. Yeah, not quite. And they would they would tell me uh, when I come back for tests, they would say, you look good today. Congrats. You know, we're going to take this three or four months at a time, come back then, keep in mind, there's strong chance this is going to come back. And so I kind of lived with, uh, with this date hanging over me when I had to go back to the doctor. So I, I would live my life in like little three or four month increments. I get the A-OK, -okay, I'd plan a trip for the next four months. I'd plan something that I was going to do, um, you know, to reconnect with people and, uh, and then just kind of waiting for the ax to fall. And then yeah. one day I got there and they said, well, we don't see cancer and there might be a chance this is in the rear view mirror for you. And so we don't like to, we definitely don't say cured for stage four, but uh, they say NED, no evidence of disease. And that's where I found myself. Man, 
Well, that's that's a that's a, like I say, it's so powerful. And this this turned into the survivor's obligation where you said, hey, I made it. Some of my friends didn't. Some of the folks that I'd connected with didn't make it. I'm fortunate. Now I've I've got to really make the most out of every moment. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. Out of respect and honor uh, for those other folks. And and it's what it comes down to is the there's a lot of people that when they make it through a situation like that, they'll actually have a sense of guilt or, you know, they call it survivor's remorse, survivor's guilt. And it's yeah. a depression. So you'd think that's weird. They make it through their hardest time in their life and they're, you know, they get the good news on the other side of this and now they're depressed and, yeah. and they're, they're feeling terrible. Why is that? It's a psychological phenomenon where you say, why did I survive and all these other great people didn't? Yeah. I didn't have that. I like to say to folks, I was not depressed. I was elated, but I yeah. did have something else tugging at me uh, in the back of my mind as, as I was going through this, this transition back into regular life. And that was that I didn't carry survivor's guilt, but I did carry what I, what I termed survivor's obligation. And that's an obligation to fulfill the commitments that we all made in that room to one another about what we would do and how we would live differently had we been afforded that second chance because i knew i was living the second chance that a lot of those people would have given anything to have and i didn't want to slip back into my old life and and just have this be a short little blip on my on my radar and my lifeline i wanted this to be the defining moment uh for for a difference in how i'd live from that point forward is that something that you go back to i mean we all have these kind of ups and downs and things that happen in life do you remind yourself of that at times when when maybe what whatever situation psychological or otherwise external circumstances that you're facing do you remind yourself of this obligation every day it's, it's something i think about every single day yeah that's that's powerful so so one of the things that i know that you've done that you mentioned before and i just think this is so cool american ninja warrior yeah that was a blast how, <laughs> how did you how did you decide on this is the thing that i want to try so one of the, the epiphanies I had from, from the cancer battle was that there were things I had wanted to do in life, but I didn't because I was afraid of failing in a public way, right? I, I liked managing people's perceptions. I liked um, kind of coasting on this fighter pilot stigma and, and people thinking great thoughts about me because I had become a fighter pilot. I'd been coasting on that, that for a while uh, at that point, if I'm being real honest. And yeah. it, it, it feeds the ego, but it's not sustaining. As soon as I saw, thought it was my end of my life, that ego feeding meant nothing to me. As a matter of fact, I was ashamed that I ever did anything to feed my ego. And, and I, all I kept thinking was, this is the end of my life, and I didn't swing at the plate uh, to try some of these things I wanted to experience in life just because I was worried I was going to fail in front of others. Mm. And, you know, American Ninja Warrior is, a, is an awesome show, and I always talked about how I could go out there and, and do great on it. And, and you know, I've, I've been an athlete my entire life. And, and, and uh, I said, this is one of the many, many things that I elected to go out and just throw it out there and, and, and have fun with it and find out how I would do in that environment and really train for it and, and not care what would happen if I failed. Nice. So how does that, so you, you looked into and researched, I love that by the way, thank you for that. So you, you were looking for an opportunity to get on the show and, and, and then you go and try out, how does that work? So you send them in a video and it's a TV show first and foremost. So it's, it's like auditioning, right? So okay. send them in a video, video has to include all the training that you did, has to show you in action. And there's, there's ninja gyms all over the U S you can go yeah. them any, any big city has one. You go try to run up the warped wall. You can go try to do all these, what's called laches where you sw swing from one bar and go 10 feet to the next one and grab onto it. 
And so yeah. I did all of that training to get ready for it. I took some videos and then I didn't feel ready. You know, I, I, I think it's important to note that it wasn't like I was saying, oh, I'm going to crush this. But uh, but I knew that it was time to do it. And I, and I didn't I didn't mind failing if that's what it came down to and threw, threw my hat in the ring. And they called me up and said, come on out. Woo. So here we go. We get another heart heart racer. Giddy up, terror and exhilaration at the same time, this time on national television. <laughs> yeah, so I haven't actually seen the clip of it. What was that experience like? It was amazing. I made it uh, about halfway through the course. And, you know, that it, I wanted to make it further, of course. I was happy yeah. I didn't fall out on the first obstacle. Um, and, <laughs> yeah. and, and I trained enough to be very confident that that, that wouldn't happen. But it's still TV and it's still the nerves of uh, a big moment like that. So who knows what, what was going to take place. Uh, mm -hmm. But it was an amazing experience, and uh, and then I got a chance to train and iterate and do it again the following year, and made it even further on uh, that year. So it's 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 been a really cool journey. I'll probably try out for it again this year as well. Nice, and 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 you you enjoyed that type of working out doing. So I I did research a gym here locally that does here in Greenville, South Carolina. It's a uh, a gym like you talk about that has. So you enjoyed that. You enjoyed those types of movements. Oh yeah. Yeah, that's, you know, it's, it's really challenging. It goes back to, I was saying from the couch that this was going to be very easy because I was a strong guy. I had to work out for, uh, for flying. I had to, you know, I was always in good shape. I played rugby at the Air Force Academy. And so I was fast, uh, yeah. but I didn't have anything compared to these athletes that would go out there and they could like hold themselves up by their fingers and, you know, they, yeah. but in one hand and <laughs> just these amazing strength to body weight ratio. And I just, I just had no experience with that whatsoever. And it was a new, it was definitely a new territory for me to go explore and fail at and, and have to learn how to do uh, before I hopped on the show. Well, well, kudos to you for getting out there and doing it. I mean, that's, that's uh, a lot of pressure and, and something cool. So, I, you know, hanging by your fingers. I've seen them do that. And then I've seen, I've been watching some rock climbing videos. This free solo. Have you seen that guy that's climbing? Isn't that amazing? I, I can't even, I, I don't know, but it, there's some, there's some special and unique talent out there, isn't there? I mean, yeah. You know what I think of that? So I watched it and just like everybody else is you watch this person who's uh, who, who takes off the rope and uh, no longer has a safety harness attached to them. And you think like you got to be a little breed of crazy for this or maybe even mentally ill. Like there's you know, you can you can make the argument that there's there's something wrong with that person. But I see it a little bit differently from my perspective, because I was doing things in an F-15. You know, if you were to say 150 years ago, we're going to strap a machine on our backs. I lost you. Yeah. I give me one second. Oh no. Now you I got there? you back. Yeah, can you hear me? Yeah, I got yeah. you. Do you know if it's that was on your side or is it mine? I, I think mine. Probably on mine. Probably on okay. mine. Okay. What was I talking about? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh no. We're, we're, we're talking about Ninja Warrior and we're talking about uh Oh, strapping a plane on your back. We we're talking about the fact that the free solo and you yes. watch these guys on free solo. Thank you. And so, and, and here's what I took away from it. I said that, you know, you could watch that. And I've heard people say like, that guy's crazy. Or I've yeah. even heard people say, you know, the mental illness to, to, to you know, to, almost suicidal if you're going to try to do this uh, and climb this without any harnesses or any safety net or anything like that. And yeah. my reaction is slightly different because I was 
as, as somebody who flew faster than the speed of sound, if you look back 150 years ago and said, we're going to strap a machine on your back and we're going to go faster than the speed of sound, you're going to take it off from the ground, you're going to you know, fly at 50,000 feet in the air, and then you're going to land it later, only the craziest among us, the mentally ill, would, would try something like that. But I know something that the free solo guy knows as well, which is you can train to mitigate as, as much risk as possible so that it almost becomes um, rote. And, and so, so that it's almost as dangerous as, you know, just any other extreme sport that you could participate in. The other analogy that everybody can relate to is driving in a car. 120 years ago, 130 years ago, the thought of hurling your body uh, down a street or a, a road going uh, at 70 miles an hour, two feet away from a car on your left and your right in front of you and behind you would seem insane. And yet we do that on a daily basis because there's a system that, that trained us to mitigate the risk. Yeah, uh, and, and I, I'm thinking back to what you said in the beginning, you know, your first experience in the plane and the process that you went through and the team and, and how it was just step by step. And this was next in the progression. He, he studied every movement he knew what he was doing. He, he had this really mapped out mentally and had trained so much that, that as you said, he mitigated the risk. That's exactly right. And, and one of the things, so I was a flight trainer um, for a while before I trained the instructors. I was training the students. And when you're training students, you're taking somebody who's driving a car and teaching them how to fly a plane. You know, they have no basis for comparison for how to fly the plane. And so you're having to create that for them. And one of the things that we would do which is extremely powerful and I recommend for everybody is called chair flying. And that's where you would sit in a chair and you visualize success. You visualize all the actions you're going to take inside of the cockpit and you visualize what all the instruments look like. You visualize doing the acrobatic maneuver, feeling the G forces and where your hands are going and what you're doing. And it, it seems silly that this would make such a big difference. But it's the most important thing and the most important determinant for success for students going through the flight program. It has nothing to do with, you know, a student's a natural stick or a natural good hands. It has nothing to do with uh, or much less to do with how much they studied and, you know, just read up on how to do this. It's the visualization of that activity until it's ingrained in their brain. And it's, you, you bake it into your subconscious so that once you get into the plane, a lot of those actions become natural for you. And that's like anything in life. So whether you're selling uh, or you're leading a team, you, you can bake those recipes for success into uh, your everyday if you're visualizing this and, and programming your brain on how you want to do it right. Yes. No, I, I, I appreciate you saying that because I do. I think that visualization, even if, you know, I've ran a couple of road races here recently and you know you're going to be hurting and you can kind of see yourself hurting okay here i am i'm a half a mile from the finish there's some people here and there and you and then you kind of walk it out it's like living the dream <laughs> you know you're yeah. living and you you knew how you performed as you said in the chair and so now i've got to hey to finish what happened I'm, i push through this part i keep going you know and 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 that's just a it's an amazing thing when you when you have really worked to visualize that and then to actually do it and live it out. It's it's almost like you're uh, controlling your own destiny to a degree, right? One hundred percent. And and when you visualize it, I, to to piggyback on what you said, you can actually experience some of the pain along the way, and that, and that's really important to do that because what I've learned is that you're not going to experience the same amount of pain each and every time. And you're not going to experience the same amount of anxiety. The more times you do it, the gradually, the less and less you're going to experience it. The great example is public speaking. 
Uh, so when we, we train people how to do uh, speaking on stage in front of 5,000 people in my company, we very often called to, to train a 5,000 person audience on the principles of being a fighter pilot and, and have them walk away with those in their mind. Well, of course, you know, it's one thing to teach that. It's another thing to stand under the hot lights and have 5,000 sets of eyeballs staring at you uh, and then have that conversation with a crowd like that. Yeah. And, and what, we, what we teach them is that once again, it's like chair flying. We'll tell them, do the entire thing. And I want you to visualize the pain, just like you visualize the pain in, on your, your ride, right? You, yeah. you visualize sweating and, and hating it and everything else that comes along with it. And you can actually see somebody going through these motions as they're practicing the speech and they'll start to sweat and they'll get really uncomfortable. And you, it's, it's horrible. You know, it's very uncomfortable. Yeah. And the point here, though, is you have to keep doing it. If you quit here, a lot of people quit here and say, why am I putting myself through this? I'll just wait till the big day. I'll just do it then. And, you know, I'm just, I'll just gut my way through it at that point. What they're missing is there's a whole lot of that discomfort that they could have spread out over time, almost all of it, maybe, uh, to experience it before the big day, before you're on, under the hot lights, so that as you experience it, it's almost like a well, and you're keeping, you're continuing to draw from that anxiety until the point when you get in front of the crowd, you start to start going through the motions, and your hands start moving, and you start talking, and you're, you'll be amazed how much simpler it is because you've already experienced that anxiety in a simulated environment. I love it. And, and that's a great kind of segue into what you guys are doing with Afterburner. This is, and you correct me if I'm wrong, this is elite military, ex-military professionals that you're working with in, in a, and now in a corporate environment. So you're teaching some of the things that you guys learned and you're going into corporations and, and helping teach some of those skills uh, that you learn from different parts of the military, right? That's exactly right. So you take elite military team members, uh, a lot former, but some current ones as well, that'll come together and uh, will help to translate that into business impact. And some of it is leadership training. Some of it is talking from the stage, working with 5,000 people and, and having them uh, take some, get some takeaways to apply on Monday. But then a lot of it is also working with teams side by side, uh, particularly in the tech industry right now. We keep being called on specific initiatives to help them build long-term success plans, translate that into disciplined execution, and uh, and very in a very much traditional consulting practice, uh, carry them through and get them to the point where they're successful uh, using the principles that made us successful from our chaotic, complex environments we came from. Absolutely. So this this is a lot of times it's probably classroom and and talking to the whole organization. Do you guys get granular and do some one-on-one -on -one coaching? with maybe the CEO or someone like that to help them. And, and maybe some of the listeners can apply a few of the things that you may tell these folks if you do get into a granular situation. We do. It's, it's all uh, about having that common mental model. And so we have uh, off the shelf training for leaders at every level. And, and the reason I say off the shelf is because we will customize portions of it, but it's also important to know that there are clear paths to success and principles behind success stories in leadership. And we're going to help expose them to those principles and then help them to execute against that as well. In other words, it's it's demo do. When I would fly in the airplane teaching somebody how to do a loop, I would fly the loop first. I would tell them what to look at and what we're experiencing. And then I would say, you have the aircraft and then they'd fly it and they'd do it after I've demoed it. And so when we train these team members, we'll train it in a hypothetical situation but then we'll go out and we'll say all right let's build 200 million dollars worth of pipeline for that tech initiative over the summer that you guys are launching and let's use the principles and the mission planning skills that we learned as a team in order to go after that 
And uh, it's been a lot of fun watching this translate to massive success. It, you know, it's, we, we get, we've created billions of dollars worth of market cap uh, for these companies over the past couple of years. Tech in particular has just been explosive. A competitive advantage, a superpower in tech is to have operational alignment in both vision and disciplined execution. As particularly right now when we're all separated in, in the pandemic, it is absolutely a superpower to have everybody operating from the same vision, the same strategy, and the same execution cadence, which is what we had to do when we were flying airplanes miles away from each other and away from the people on the ground. Yeah. So, and, and that's, it's a great kind of, well, let me ask you this. So I know a lot of folks, they've been in military and then they try to get into the corporate world or get a job. I heard, you, I, I read one of the analogies that you made, something about Tom Brady. Right. And, and tell that one. I, I love that one. <laughs> well, yeah, this one is specific to talking to military members and, and yeah. you know, I, I, I give them some tough love and, <laughs> and tell them uh, two things. I say, and, and this is based off of my experience and many, many other people that I've helped to mentor through the transition from the military into the corporate world. And mm -hmm. I, I, tell, I tell anybody who's getting ready to transition, you are both simultaneously overprepared to just knock it out of the park once you get into this corporate role and completely underprepared for what you're about to experience, <laughs> which doesn't make a lot of sense to us, yeah. right? We, we're coming out of an environment where we're flying faster than the speed of sound with our friends and we're, we're doing these crazy missions and lives are on the line and we're successful like 99.9% .9 of the time and we've learned these elite skills. And, and, and it's a little bit daunting and a hit to the ego uh, to think that we're unprepared for this new chapter because everything else the world has thrown at us up until this point, we've been able to tackle. But what we have to realize is we're starting over. You know, when I went into my business school, I got my MBA from the University of Texas and I remember sitting in class and it was uh, listening to them talk. It was like Spanish and Portuguese. You know, if you know anything about language, they sound really similar. And at first blush, it seems like they're saying the same thing, but it, they're not the same. And, and as you listen closer, you're thinking, oh, wow, I really don't know what anybody's talking about. And that was, that was a pretty big hit to the ego uh, during that time frame. And, and it required me to reinvent myself uh, pretty aggressively. And so here's how it ties into Tom Brady. Yeah. So when, yeah. so when, uh, when, I, when I'm talking to some, some uh, folks that are getting ready to transition to the military, I say, imagine that Tom Brady comes into your flying squadron and he says, Hey folks, I would like to be a fighter pilot. And you guys are like, it's Tom Brady. It's the one, it's the goat. You know, this is the, the best of all time. This is amazing. We're going to have Tom Brady in the squadron. I can't wait to tell my friends. We got Tom Brady that's working and flying with us. And you yeah. say, all right, Tom, we got to go through the motions of an interview. You know, let's, let's at least have the conversation. So we're, we're going to make you a fighter pilot and you're how old you're 44. Okay. Uh, okay. Uh, <laughs> So, you know, what do you think, what do you think you're going to be able to bring to the squadron as you think about, you know, how you're going to go learn how to fly and, and, you know, what's your path and your plan to be able to do that? And Tom says, well, you know, I just go back to that time when we were down 27-3 uh, to the Atlanta Falcons and nobody <laughs> thought we could do it. And, and yet I went to the locker room and I told them that we were going to pull it off. And, and lo and behold, we won after that. And I've been the MVP nine times and done all these things. And you're thinking... As you're doing the interview, you're thinking, well, gosh, I know all that and I love that, yeah. but you know, that doesn't really translate to flying the airplane. 
I mean, I'm sure he, he could learn it. And all of a sudden you start to have some doubt creep in as you're thinking about bringing Tom Brady into the group. And you ask him some more questions. He keeps just going back to his past chapter. And even though he was so dominant in his past chapter, now you're starting to remember, well, I got a lot of 22 year olds that are fresh out of college that I'm going to have a lot of their time and a lot of their energy. And they don't have kids and they don't have all these other distractions going on. They're going to focus themselves 100% on this. And I can't believe I'm thinking this, but I might have to pass on having Tom Brady in the squadron. And I'll tell the military members, you're Tom Brady. Yeah. You, when you go to the corporate world, everyone's rooting for you. They want to hire you. They want to tell the world they hired a fighter pilot, a Navy SEAL, somebody who was in a mission and, you know, telling cool stories. But if you're thinking you're going to coast on that or that those skills will immediately translate, you're setting yourself up for a pretty rude awakening. And uh, it's going to require reinventing yourself and, and working harder than your peers at 22 or 23 years old, which is a bitter pill to swallow. When you're, when you're at the end of your first chapter, by that point, you have other people making you coffee and you're the one in charge and you know how to do everything. And now yeah. you're starting over and you're the one who's you know, taking care of others and, 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 and having to make sure that other people are successful. I'll never forget a general that I greatly, greatly respected. I, one of our clients, I, I see him again. I flew with him before and now he's at one of our clients and yeah. he's a chief of staff, which is, you know, kind of a, a good role at this place, but not for somebody who's been a strategic leader for thousands of people. Now he's, you know, kind of running down projects, but he had the right mentality. He said, I'm going to soak it all in. I'm going to learn. I'm going to reinvent myself. He had humility. And mm -hmm. I watched that same general who started as a chief of staff, the equivalent of like a 28 or 29 year old's job, then immediately skyrocket months into the job after he learned the language and could translate things. All of a sudden he was adding more value than anybody else. Why? Because of adjacent skill sets. And what that means is you can translate some of your previous chapters into the new one. And matter of fact, you're going to bring outside the box type thinking into this new world, things they've never considered before because you have an entirely different paradigm through which you view the world than, than this other group of people. But you gotta be able to translate it. And that requires you start over, that requires that you put in the work as if you were 23 years old. And then then from that point forward, the sky's the limit. Uh, I love that, you know, and, and I think it's great for, for military folks. I think it's great for people that have to make a job change, that same mentality, you know, you're going from one career to another. I, told, I remember having breakfast with a guy. He was a, a great baseball player in college and, yeah. and got obviously all the perks that go with that didn't work out in the major leagues. All of a sudden, he's, he's, a, he's just a sales dude like the rest of us. You know what I mean? And he oh, had yeah. the same thing. Now, so, so I think that that's great information for, for people in a lot of different transitional type periods. Yeah, I, I think it applies to anybody who's looking to reinvent themselves. And it's yeah. not that you don't get credit for the previous chapter. You just have to figure out how to translate that. And you can't wait for the, the new group to, to translate that on their own. Because, you know, just like the fighter pilots can't bring in Tom Brady on day one and translate how well he threw a spiral in the Super Bowl, you're not going to be able to translate your skills to the next chapter unless you put in the work in order to make that happen. Man, I have really enjoyed this conversation, Joel. So Thank you, Daniel. I really have too. Yeah, I, I was looking forward to it. And from a selfish standpoint, getting to getting to talk to people that inspire me and and that have accomplished a lot, that's knowledgeable. So a podcast for me, it's, it's a lot of a selfish thing because I get to be be around people, right? You got to if we're the average of the five people we hang around. I want to be around some some Thors. <laughs> oh, I love that. You know, I really appreciate that. I'm humbled by those words. 
Uh, but uh, but this has been an awesome experience, and, and I love what you're doing for folks. It's it's great. To, I, I agree with you. The average of the five people you spend the most time with, and yeah. uh, and I always say I like to try try to find people I'm dragging down the average with, so that uh, <laughs> I can grow through their experiences. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, have a have a great rest of the day, man. And I appreciate you coming on. Thanks, Daniel. You too. All right. Have a good one. Well, that's it, folks. Another conversation in the books. Thanks again to Joel Thor Neeb. Really enjoyed talking with him. Inspired by his story. I hope you were too. And we have more conversations to come. So stay tuned. Have a great week, everybody. Let's roll.